Lovely. Well, while the, um, the buckets just finish off doing their rounds, and if you have a Bible, would you like to be turning to Mark's Gospel in the New Testament, and we're going to look at Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, please don't worry. You'll be able to read the uh, scripture references we look at up on the screen, so you can follow it there if you like. Been in Mark's Gospel for some time. In fact, I I think this is the most dog-eared page of my Bible. We must have been here for a little while now. Um, Looking at uh, Jesus, his ministry, this middle section of Mark's Gospel where he's focusing on training his disciples and teaching them about the kingdom. And uh, this week we've arrived at Mark chapter 10, verse 17, which is entitled, in my Bible anyway, The Rich Young Man. Um, Mark just tells us that he's rich. Uh, I think it might be Luke that tells us that he's young, and, uh, and Matthew that tells us that he was a ruler. So we could call him the, the rich young ruler. Um, anyway, we're going to see Jesus' encounter with this man and, uh, and draw out some, some things from it. So I'm going to read from Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Here we go. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, we've left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth. Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, and with them persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So here we have this uh, encounter. Jesus firstly has this conversation with the young man um, and then it's a, 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 an opportunity to teach his disciples. Thereafter he has a conversation with his uh, disciples. I think Mark is keen to tell us about the good news of Jesus Christ and when Jesus began his ministry he, he said the time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. And now in this section of the book, as I mentioned earlier, the the focus is on training the disciples, teaching them, equipping them 
trying to show them that God's kingdom, that they are to be a part of, is totally different to the world's way of doing things. The worldly kingdom that they've grown it up in uh, one way or another. Completely different foundation. Its, its values are completely topsy-turvy. We've seen before uh, where their heads were spinning because Jesus had just really rearranged the way that they should be thinking about, well, leadership. What does it mean to be great? They were fighting amongst themselves for the high positions. He said, no, that to be great means to be the servant of all. Well, well that's completely the other way around. Um, in having regard for children and little ones and, and kind of bringing them into the middle of things, Jesus was showing them that the kingdom of God is, is completely different. It's not what you're, you're used to. Uh, we've seen that as well, looking at uh, the subject of, of marriage. They, they, they grew up in a climate where divorce was easy. It was, um, you just gave your spouse a certificate of divorce, no questions asked, no reasons needed. And, and Jesus, again, rearranges it, turns it right the way upside down to teach them about humility, to teach them about holiness, to teach them about marriage. And here, to teach them about money. And so that's what we'll be uh, considering this morning uh, for our time together. And again, seeing that the kingdom of God approaches money completely differently. We can just think sometimes that, well, we'll just gather the best practice from right around the world and give it a, a spiritual gloss, a spiritual veneer, and that that's what we're really aiming for. So we, we kind of take our cues from the priorities uh, and ideas and values of the world around us. Um, well, no, this shows us something very different. So it's a very surprising encounter. We see the rich young man. And we see here would appear to be the most promising potential recruit to the kingdom of God. Just look at how he approaches Jesus. With urgency, with eagerness, he ran up to him. That's unusual. It's unusual for somebody in that particular climate and culture to be running anywhere. Um, a bit undignified, but he's, he's desperate, he's eager. He fell on his knees. He's making a good start. We find out that he's quite righteous. We can take him as sincere, I think, that as far as he's aware, he's lived a a morally upright life in regard to the law of Moses. Outwardly, his behavior. Um, He would have been an an excellent guy, no doubt, to have around. He's also got an eternal perspective. He realizes, as much as that's the case, what must I do to inherit eternal life? There's, there's got to be more. That the fact that I've kept to the laws, the, uh, the, 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 the fact that I'm approaching Jesus, there, there must be something more. He's, he's insightful. He's seeing that obeying God's law wasn't enough. That coming into God's kingdom required something else. What was it? So he asks a great question on his knees. What must I do to inherit eternal life? That would look like an open goal 
of an evangelistic opportunity. Sometimes on YouTube, you see those kind of clips, if you don't mind the sporting analogy for now, of how did this person manage to miss the goal from like one yard? Uh, the goal mouth was completely open. The, the, the keeper was nowhere to be seen. All he's got to do is kind of tap it in, but somehow it balloons over the bar and it's, the opportunity's gone. What? And I think as the disciples were listening to Jesus' response to him, they must be just going, what? Why is kind of Jesus kind of seemingly being a bit pointed? I think the disciples are shocked. They probably just thought of wealth and money in, if not positive, in, in neutral terms. It's, it's great. Well, money, yeah, if someone's wealthy, so they may have thought, it's a sign of God's blessing. And it's certainly no hindrance, it's no obstacle to coming to God. If anything, it probably helps. Um, one way or another, it must be a sign that God's, God's pleased with him. Uh, they may have thought. And then they're hearing Jesus saying how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now I wonder, have you heard the one about the gate in Jerusalem that was known as the needle? And uh, sometimes this crops up in thinking, sometimes this crops up in, in I've, I can't remember which one, but I'm sure I've spotted it in a Bible, in a children's Bible book. I think sometimes when a children's Bible is compiled, obviously they select a few things here or there, and they, they might decide what ones to include on the basis of what vivid illustration might go with it. And um, if you have heard this one, it's a myth to be debunked. The idea went that there was a gate in Jerusalem that a camel could go through, but only if it unloaded its goods and went through on its knees. And so we were to understand, um, according to that inter- that creative unhelpful interpretation that that's what we've got to do it's yet yeah, we we've got to kind of unload our, our possessions or something on our knees it's humble we go through and then we can stand up again and load everything back on it's no real massive change if now we might think well how are we to know that is or isn't an appropriate interpretation i'm not familiar with the detail of the archaeology of jerusalem and, and was there this gate well, just look at the disciples' response. If there had been some gate, and Jesus said with a knowing kind of wink, that's a bit like a camel going through the eye of a needle. They go, oh, I get it. You're talking about that gate? So what does that mean? All oh, right, so you've kind of got to unload, but then you can pack back up again. Now, their response is to be even more shocked, even more amazed. They're taking Jesus illustration at face value. A camel, the largest animal they were likely to be familiar with, through the eye of the needle, maybe the smallest hole they would be familiar with, that's grotesquely impossible. It just simply cannot happen. It'd be like saying if you, know, you take a delivery at your house, there's a knock on the door, um, Sometimes happens. Sometimes, you know, deliveries are a bit tricky to get through the door, aren't they? You think we, we, we ordered it online, we thought it would fit, but now the moment has come, 
what are we to do in squeezing it through? You open the door to find that on your street a jumbo jet has landed. A jumbo jet can't really fit on your street, but go with it for now. Okay, the jumbo jet has landed. And, all right, so what's the delivery? It's the jet. We need to bring this into your house. Well, that's ridiculous. Can't get that through the door. No, we're not taking it through the door. We're going through the letterbox. Come on, guys. (laughs) This way. Easy. No, no, no. Whoa, 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 whoa. Left a bit. Left a bit. Right. Right. How are we going to do this? Maybe if we let the air out of the tires, it will come. We'll be able to get it through. No, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. It's an extreme illustration to say it's impossible. Jesus then agrees. Yes, with man, it's impossible. Um, and he's not, at that point, just talking about the rich either. Um, when he says uh, a little bit more, and I'm losing my place already. When he clarifies it again with the disciples in verse 20, 24, saying, children, how hard it is To enter the kingdom of God. Well, for all of us. Somebody receiving the good news of Jesus and coming into his kingdom is, regardless of age or background or nationality, regardless of any personal factor, it's a miracle. And it's a miracle because we're so prone to put our trust in other things. So the the disciples are utterly shocked. What are we thinking? How are we feeling? What are we responding to? Because to talk about money and wealth is not something that is all that easy. You just simply don't ask somebody how much they earn. Do you really? We don't say how much we've given. There's an appropriate sense of just, no, this, this is a bit of a private topic. It's not perhaps easy to talk about. It's perhaps also not easy for us to see clearly right around the room. We'll be in a whole variety of different situations. Probably considering the whole of history and all of human civilization and every experience and economy around the world we're all wealthy and in a good position I would I hope that's not being too presumptuous but in many ways that's the case and if we're to understand this passage well we've got to avoid uh, slipping one way or another which is obviously so often the case uh, one person has likened it to, to getting on a horse. And if we get on the horse and we fall off one way, we might then get back on the horse, but we can overcompensate then and fall off the other way. And perhaps with money that's particularly the case, because we can err towards materialism, and our culture might help us be prone to that. No one can tell me what to do. It's a, entirely a private matter. It's my money, after all, so, stick your oar out. Um, I'm, no, I'm not imagining any, for a moment that anyone's thinking things literally in those terms right now, of course. But that sense of, no, I, 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 I like being in control of my money. Um, and so it's possible to have a bit of a dual life. When it comes to spiritual things, um, 
life can be conducted with one set of values. But when it comes to managing money, then we can be prone, or materialism can want us to be prone, just to processing all of those decisions on the basis of self-interest and what I want. And the world would encourage us to have that kind of double life. We might feel a pressure to keep up with the Joneses. We might feel a pressure to, to wear the latest fashion. We might just feel that we can... I mean, I can remember this. don't mind it so much now, but as kids, like going shopping in town, and your mum wanted to visit a charity shop. For us, it's like nothing... It's like the ultimate in cringeworthy moment. Maybe my friend might see me right now. I'm not sure I can handle that. What are you doing here? Nothing. Nothing. I I don't need it. The idea of wearing something that might be slightly last season or is actually wearing out or or whatever. It's, oh, goodness me, you can't... um, Don't really want to do that. Um, And so we might feel tempted to... Um, a lifestyle that we can't sustain to impress other people that we don't like. Um, but that's what materialism leads to um, in, an, in, an ex, in its extreme. And our faith somehow then just doesn't get connected to finance. It's, com- it's just a disjoint. Well, that's one way we can be prone. But perhaps there's another way we can also be prone, and, and reading a passage like this, and that's to legalism. Um, And I guess we've encountered different examples of that through Mark's gospel so many times as Jesus and his disciples um, rub shoulders with, at times, the teachers of the law and what should and shouldn't be done. And we can find, uh, for those, even if we've decided to follow Jesus, that sometimes there's that, that, that draw, that slip, that tendency. We just find it easier to handle money through law, through, through rules, just finding out what I should do, what I have to do, what I ought to do, and what I can avoid doing. Um, that's the, uh, the focus. Sometimes that could mean, perhaps if we're, if, we've, if we're prone to legalism, if we just feel like we're not allowed anything nice or anything that might give us some amount of pleasure, we must deny ourselves it, therefore. Um, imagine a slightly ludicrous scenario, but imagine that somebody gives you a house and that's just what you need. And it's, it's lovely and it's completely a gift. There's no strings attached. And you move in. Um, and it's not kind of ridiculously lavish and ostentatious. It's just got really nice carpet. And you know that that you would never have been able to afford that carpet. A really thick pile, really comfortable, really nice, really thick. I don't know why it needs to be that thick. <laughs> That's probably a bit extreme, really, isn't it? <laughs> anyway, you'd lose the children. Um, <laughs> but now, even though you didn't pay for it, almost the, the, the legalist might be thinking, I've just got to get rid of that carpet. I've got to replace it with something else that doesn't look so nice didn't cost a thing. It's there. It's a gift. But I don't want other people to think that I'm living a lavish and, and, and easy lifestyle. Um, so, right, the carpet's got to go. Uh, well, I, or given a lovely holiday. Well, I don't normally go. Um, 
Uh, I, I wouldn't pay for that myself if, if it hadn't been a gift. You know, we, we, we try and make these kind of excuses because we're kind of just worried or guilty, feeling guilty. Um, so ripping up the, car, the carpet. So if we're going to benefit from this passage, we need to see the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue may well be actually, who do we worship? Or what do we worship? Who do we trust? Whose hands, into whose hands have we placed our lives? For the disciples, it looked like this big open goal. Here's a rich guy. He's, he understands, he has a desire to live for God. He has a regard for God's holy standards, but he knows he's not sufficient in himself. He's got this nagging sense, there must be more. I haven't come into the kingdom of God yet. How do I come into eternal life? Um, It looks like it's an awesome open goal. Um, Jesus is seeing, however, right through to the heart. This is not a scenario just just to tweak, just to crouch a little bit and come through the gate and out the other side. Jesus is saying, there's a massive issue right here, and it's to do with who we worship. And it becomes clear that this man worships money, or money is an idol. What is an idol? Well, actually, something good Money is not intrinsically bad. But Jesus is pointing out here that it is or can be incredibly dangerous to our hearts. The same can be said of other things that God provides. Sex in the context of marriage, good. It can become an idol that dominates culture. And happiness is just about this thing Money can make me happy. A relationship can make me happy. It's all about house. It's all about success in the workplace or academically. And good things can become a god, an idol. We treat it as a substitute. We sang in one of the songs earlier on, be the first one that we run to. That's an attitude of worship. Lord God, you're the first one that I run to. Um, but look at the direction this guy went in. We'll just run through, if you like, this passage reveals, I think, a few, a few hallmarks of life worshipping money and a few hallmarks of life worshipping God. Life worshipping money leads us into greed. Jesus puts his finger on the heart of the issue. In an exchange that might seem slightly odd to us to start with, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Good teacher, it's, it's not a bland phrase. He's coming understanding that Jesus is, is very significant, is very special, is very different. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. He's kind of coming back to him on his own terms and saying, well, what do you really mean by this? He says, you know the commandments. Now, what's interesting, what commandments does he include? He's referring to the Ten Commandments, 
He doesn't mention all ten. You can check that out in Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 4 or 5. Um, he doesn't mention all ten commandments. He mentions the ones that are specific to how we relate with one another. And he jumbles the order slightly. So honoring mum and dad comes near the end, but, but actually in the Old Testament we see that comes kind of further up the list. Okay, so the, the list is a little bit different, but he, he's highlighting how we relate with one another. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Which commandment is do not defraud? It's fascinating. It's like the commandment that's been missed out or kind of edited deliberately is the commandment do not covet. Now that's actually tricky to work out. Do not murder. An obvious behavior. Do not commit adultery. An obvious behavior. Do not bear false witness. An obvious behavior. Do not covet. Can be just tucked away and more difficult to detect. Jesus misses it out or tweaks it and calls it do not defraud, which is then again a behavior on purpose. That's the issue. What, what does the guy say? I've kept all of these since my youth. He just doesn't want to go there. Doesn't want to talk about covetousness. Wealth, what he's lusting after, what he really um, desires. So, a life worshipping money leads us to to greed. Well, why does it do that? Well, it leads us into dissatisfaction. This man had a lot. Interestingly, he knew that he lacked something. Jesus agreed. One thing you lack. We didn't lack anything. Materially, he had everything he needed. One thing you lack, go and sell it. And suddenly that highlights this issue of who he's worshipping. And in a just a. It's, it's desperate. Jesus is not trying to make things deliberately difficult for him. Jesus is inviting him to come and follow him. This is what Jesus said to the 12 disciples come and follow me. And to other people, he, he said to another guy who he, he healed from being oppressed by many demons, he said, actually, for you, go back to your family. Go and tell them what God has done for you. Um, so God interact, Jesus interacts with different people, responds in different ways. To this guy, he says, come, join me. Come and follow me. Come and be with me. I, I want you to join in. I want you to, you'll, you'll learn about the kingdom. You'll see what it's like. And you'll come into it. But there's this other gods you have in your life and you can't have two you can only have one master and so he has the he has the the, again it's this open goal scenario that somehow he misses he could be with jesus he could have walked with jesus he could have gone on adventures of faith with jesus he could have seen closer right up close Jesus working miracles. He could have, whilst the other disciples were shocked and horrified by it at the time, he, he could have looked back and think, I was, I was there. I saw what he went through for me. But when it's put to him in these stark terms, he makes, he makes a choice and he decides Even though I'm dissatisfied, even though my wealth hasn't satisfied me, even though my attempts to obey the law haven't satisfied me, 
I prefer that way of life. I'm going to try and relate to God with my money by myself than relate to God through Jesus. Ouch. Look at the opportunity he had that he missed out on. And so worshipping money kind of does that. It it, it brings a a self-reliance. He begins asking a good question, but notice how it's phrased. What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is, this is down to me. And if money becomes an idol, it, it kind of is whispering lies to us. It's deceiving us. And money is whispering to this guy, you can do it. You can be the master of your own future. You can be the master of your own identity. You're self-sufficient. You're independent. You don't need anyone or anything else. Look at what you've achieved. And look at what you can achieve. Go it alone. Worship me, money says. And I'll look after you. I'll be everything that you need. Okay. And he heads in that direction. There's a, a proverb... Would you believe with a lot of wisdom in it? Proverbs chapter 30. Uh, well, reading from verse 7. Two things I ask of you, O Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? That's what money can do. You don't need him. You don't need God. You've got me, money says. I'll keep you safe. I'll keep you secure. I've got your future in hand. If you worship me, a self-reliance, or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of the Lord. It's like, money is dangerous. And it's dangerous if we love it. Which again, we see um, Paul writing to, to Timothy. In one Timothy. That might got a bit confusing. Um, he writes in, in one Timothy six verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we will take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and are trapped into many foolish and harmful desires. Um, that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money promises so much that it can't actually deliver. Therefore, a life worshipping money will inevitably actually lead to worry, regardless of how much we have. It doesn't bring satisfaction. I was reading about Henry Ford, responsible for now this massive motor uh, car company revolutionized how cars were built in the early 1900s and became very wealthy as a result. He said, I was, I was more happy when I just did the job of a mechanic. He said, all that wealth, all that money, actually a heap of worry along with it. Interestingly, uh, some time ago we were in Mark chapter 4. And in Mark chapter 4, Jesus tells the parable of the sower. Well, of really... The, the soils, the four different soils. And do you remember what one of the soil types is? It's thorny, thorny ground. And, um, 
And Jesus explains it to his disciples in Mark chapter 4 and verse 18. He says, still others like seed sown among thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. And what do we have here? The deceitfulness of wealth. The worries of this life and the desires for other things. Meaning that this guy who, who looked so fruitful and could have been so fruitful in discipleship with Jesus turns away. The, the scenario reveals who he worships. But, well, what's the kingdom like then? What's it like to be in the kingdom of God? What does a life spent worshipping God and being him being the first one that we run to... What are the hallmarks of this kingdom? What are the hallmarks of this way of life? I'll mention three things, uh, just uh, semi-quickly. Don't want to get your hopes up too much. Um, Firstly, generosity. That sense of adventure. Jesus was not punishing the man by suggesting, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. He was inviting him on an adventure. Now sometimes if something has become an idol in our lives, it kind of requires drastic measures to help us make this clean break so that we no longer worship. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. We need to dig up the thorns here. If you can dig this up, it's going to be so much fruit. But we need to get at the root of this. I don't think he was saying, you'll never handle money ever again. You'll never earn money ever again. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, no, you, you need a completely different relationship with money. So, so come with me and, and make, something, make this a decisive break from the way that you have been living your life. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's an encouragement of, of generosity. But note again, every encouragement to generosity is backed up with a promise. You will have treasure in heaven. I challenge you to find Jesus teaching on money and encouraging us to, about giving without providing massive incentives for faith. And he, he has it right here. And I think uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 gives us a, a, an example, a, a glimpse to a church or a group of churches who seem to have grasped this. That we're not trying to relate with money just on the basis of law and rules. And sometimes church life can be like that. Sometimes Christianity can get presented as that. Enjoy the grace of God, but you have to give a tenth. Tithe, everybody. And, okay, try and find reference to tithing in the New Testament. I challenge you. We have loads of talk about giving and generosity and grace. We're not told that there's this hard and fast rule. Now we can give in proportion to what we earn, and 10% could be a, a helpful guide, one way or another. But look, this is how the Macedonian churches are described. In, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, out of the most severe trial, wasn't easy. Their overflowing joy... Just note that. And their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
does severe trial plus overflowing joy plus extreme poverty result to being really, really generous. This is, this is an adventure of faith. We're, we're, we're glimpsing here something that's miraculous. Oh no. So you've just said, like, it's not about tithing. We've all got to give impossibly. That's the rule, is it? No. It isn't. It says later on that Paul uses the phrase, this, this grace of giving. No one was telling the Macedonian churches to give. But they saw an opportunity and they didn't want to be deprived of the privilege of responding and being involved. That's how they saw giving. That's how they saw generosity. We want to be involved. And giving and generosity is like that. You can't attach a rule to generosity. How generous do I have to be? It's like, it's about spotting opportunities. And by grace thinking, do you know what? I think we can be involved in that. I think we'd, I'd love us to do that. Or I'm going to be involved in that. No one else, it might be just me that spotted it. But so aware of what we do have and so aware of God's generosity, it just bubbles up and it overflows. Love of money makes us more aware of what we don't have. Love of God makes us aware of what we do have. And it's wonderful. So generosity starts to flow not as a rule, but as an, agenda, as a, as an adventure. Um, and it's been a thrill to, to make a phone call this week on the basis of a special opportunity to give that we had as a church because we'd spotted an opportunity to bless another church. So I think maybe God's got something in us being involved. Maybe we can be. And to know that making a phone call and saying to a good friend, um, we'd like to give you a large sum of money to help with the kingdom of God in the church that you lead. To know that the quantity was that we decided to give between us was precisely what was needed. To know that the timing of the provision, again, it was just precisely what was needed. It's like, this is exciting. We get to do this. We get to be involved. And it's kingdom stuff. So money, it's not bad and evil. It can be a tool for the kingdom of God. And because we worship him, we're working out what to do with money, therefore. So generosity, contentment. Like I've already said, we, we can sometimes be more aware of what we don't have. And love of money wants to highlight what we don't have. Actually, there's great contentment in God. We read that in the verses in in 1 Timothy. We also see it in Paul's own testimony, and he's not lying. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 11, he is writing to the Philippian church, and one of the things he's doing is saying, thank you so much for the gift that you just gave me. And in verse 11 he says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances He so treasures Jesus. He so loves following Jesus. He so enjoys uh, walking with Jesus, even though at times that can be, uh, there's hard stuff, there's persecutions on the earth. He so treasures who he is and all that he has in Jesus that he can say, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. 
I don't think Paul was necessarily ripping up the carpets and saying, no, I mustn't have this, it's too nice. I think Paul would say, wow, I'm really blessed. But I'm not going to start worshipping the carpet. Thank you, Lord. Um, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. He's just thrilled to be following Jesus. So contentment comes into it. Generosity, contentment, and lastly, there's a, it's reassuring. Peter pipes up towards the end of this passage in the conversation. Maybe Peter's feeling a bit irritated, or maybe not. The attention has been on this wealthy man and how great he could have been and he could have joined them. Is it with a grumpy voice or not? I don't know. He says, we've left everything to follow you. Maybe there was some resentment in his voice. I don't know. But look at Jesus' response. He doesn't correct him. He agrees with him. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who's left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. In so many ways, the disciples, socio-economically, could have felt like they were the last. We don't have much, and we, what we did have, we gave it up, because we decided to follow Jesus. And sometimes we've counted the cost of that and gone, well, in for a penny, in for a pound. Um, and he's then uh, responding to this scenario, we've given up so much, and Jesus says, yes, and God knows it might not be obvious to others what you may have given up it may not be in in financial terms but what you have given up when you decided to come to christ and follow him we don't have everything we want there's cost there's hurt there's sacrifice there's things that we've, uh, we've let go of even desires and aspirations that we've kind of put to rest no, because I'm following him. And that's not, my, that's not my God. That's not my idol. There's a new priority in life. Jesus says, I know what you've given up. And take an eternal perspective, you will get more back. Won't necessarily be in financial terms in this life. But God knows. And God sees. And eternity will be God's opportunity to say, have some more of my abundant provision for you. Amen. I think we will draw to a close there. I will worship in just a moment. Um, and I'm just gonna, I'll just lead us in prayer um, off the back of this passage. Lord God, thank you for the joy of following you. Thank you, Lord God, as we were singing earlier on, you are this amazing, firm, solid, reliable foundation for us to build our lives on. There are many uncertainties in life, but there are certainties that we find and there's solid ground that we find in you and your character in your good news. And so, Father, I want to take this opportunity 
to say, I trust you, Lord. I trust you for my life. If you want to make that as your response this morning, you can just be in the quiet of your own mind or just quietly verbalizing before God. That's what you want to say to God today. I trust you. There's so much that's uncertain. There's so much that we, that we don't know. And money holds out this apparent promise of, I'll make things certain. I will be with you. I will keep you safe. And Father, we just want to recognize lies and say, no, true joy and satisfaction comes, oh God, in knowing and worshiping and giving our lives to you. So Father, if, if money has become a preoccupation, Lord, I pray, whether we've got loads of it or we've not got much of it, whatever the situation, Father, would your son become again our consuming preoccupation because he is better than life itself. And thank you so much, Father, for drawing us into your Son. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll grab a coffee or a drink in a minute. Let's just stand and conclude in worship, shall we?